of the Lord. Thank you for singing that. It was an awesome song. Pretty powerful song, actually. Uh, just over two weeks, my bride and I will be celebrating our 14-year anniversary. And although I tell uh, all the kids that I often meet at the high school, not to date in high school, uh, I dated in high school and I married my high school sweetheart. And we sealed the deal on March 2nd, 1992 with the first kiss. And uh, we still celebrate that a little bit. Some of them, sometimes I remember and sometimes she does. But we were engaged for a year. After uh, we were uh, uh, dating for a while, we were engaged on, I think, May 21st of 94. So then we were engaged for a year. She uh, graduated, one of the only, probably the only girl to graduate in her class with a wedding ring on to the um, interesting looks of all the teachers and her friends. And we got married on May 20th. So 14 years has been a heck of a long time. Um, and I know many of you have been married longer, some shorter, but I've realized that uh, all relationships kind of go through these stages where you get um, a deeper understanding of the person. They start off kind of simplistic, and unless you're maybe living in Vegas, it's not like you see that person and get married the next day. You kind of spend some time with each other and you grow together. And who would expect that, that first look you know, across the room that you kind of get the tingle in the back of your neck type of thing would ever lead to anything, but typically, uh, or can, lead to maybe a conversation where you're talking to one another, trying not to say anything stupid, uh, but to fill the air typically with a bunch of words to avoid those awkward silences. And then maybe you go on a date, and then maybe you go to a movie. And I always like to, I know guys probably remember this, but whenever you sit, together in your first dating you have that you know uh, we were talking about this over the weekend where you're sitting and your knees might touch and it's like all of your focus and your energy and all of your energy you know you know every thread of gene that is touching the other person's thread of gene and you're just like this is amazing she bumped my leg and you just are so focused on that eventually you might get to the point where you're, you're holding hands and you know, my wife uh, complained when we were actually being married because my hands were really clammy. And But you, when you first hold hands, it doesn't matter how disgusting and gross and sweaty, and it's just like this heat ball that's sitting there, but you hold hands because you're holding hands, and it's like amazing, you know. And then it eventually progresses into somewhat of a, a deeper relationship, and then maybe uh, into what would be considered uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, but the first kiss and all those things. And so, with each new stage, though, you get a little bit of a deeper understanding. It's not just this, you know, hold hands and kiss and, and type of thing. You get to know the person a little bit more, and you maybe know a little bit just how they behave and, and what their little quirks are and how uh, they act under pressure when things get tough, what they react like, whether they run away, whether they fight, or whether they, uh, you know, just clam up. You get to know maybe some of their secrets that they didn't tell anybody. You get to know things that they're scared of a little bit. And you have this deepening relationship unlike hopefully anyone else. And eventually maybe you get to, like my wife and I did, to the marriage proposal. Where you're like, all right, I'm either out or I'm in. And you put all your chips in and you make this decision, which I think is the second most important decision that anyone will ever make. First being whether you'll accept Christ as your Savior. Second being who are you going to marry? 
And so you make this decision and you're like, okay, I'm in. And you have the wedding. And the wedding for us was interesting because we didn't know what, I didn't know what a wedding was. I was 21, she was 20, and none of our friends had gotten married yet, so we're like, I don't know what to do for a wedding. Kayla wasn't one of those people who like, you know, had this imaginary, amazing wedding figured out in her brain of what it was going to look like. So we got you know, married at Northwest College in this little chapel, and our um, rehearsal, or not a rehearsal dinner, the uh, whatever, what's it called at the end? Your reception was in the cafeteria of the school, um, which was just amazing as we sat next to the lunch trays and things like that. Um, but, you know, we didn't know, but that day was, um, you know, was amazing. And it was beautiful. And sometimes I wonder, and I even wonder about myself, that you know, our culture seems to portray weddings and marriages as just kind of these things you do, these activities, and there's not much discussion about what is actually taking place in these times. And the vows that are being exchanged. And I think that I wonder if any of us, for those who have been married, how often we really look back and think about the vows that we actually made, if we can even remember what they were. Some people probably wrote some very special vows, have them framed on their wall. But I think a lot of people just maybe take the typical vows they find in a book somewhere and don't realize that what they've really done in this case is they've committed to love someone no matter what. Unless their vows, I guess, state that. I will love you as long as you don't have an affair. I will love you as long as you don't get to be 1,000 pounds. I will love you as long as you don't get bad burns on your face. None of those were in my vows. Maybe they were in yours. And so there's this, this exchange happening that's pretty amazing if you think about it, but it maybe is lost in the moment. And the beauty of everything, and I remember uh, asking my high school kids, the little bird walk, but I remember asking my high school kids if adultery was that big a deal. I like to kind of play with them a little bit and just mess with their brains. And so I will play devil's advocate sometimes. And I say, what's, you know, is adultery wrong? And to the kid, every kid was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's wrong. It's terrible. And I said, well, why? What's the big deal? Like, you just don't do that. I say, why not? What if it makes me happy? Well, you just, you, you don't do that. You made a commitment. I said, ah, commitment, commitment, whatever. Right? They're like, no, you, can be, you have like a contract with your wife. I, whoever said contracts were that big a deal? I see contracts broken all the time. And they're kind of just staring at me. Like, but it's, it's not written down anywhere. It's not illegal. And I eventually told them, I might have not told them because it's kind of thing to get me fired, but eh, oh well. But I told them the reason why I believe in commitments and contracts is because I believe in a God who believes in commitments and contracts. I believe in a God who makes promises that last forever. That say, I will do this even if you are doing this. See, my commitment to my wife was based off of what I was going to do. It wasn't actually predicated on anything she did. And by God's grace, he makes the same commitments to us. Because if he didn't, we would be screwed in the most darkest and fiery of places. But throughout Scripture, as Kandra is saying about, God uses language of marriage and relationship to describe his relationship to us. And it proves to me that not only is commitments and promises important, but our God is personal. 
and our God, for whatever reason, desires a relationship with me, and he makes actually, like a wedding and a marriage, formal commitments to make that relationship so. And God is, in Scripture, this faithful, loving, protective groom who pursues this adulterous bride who sleeps around with everybody. And that's us. And it's amazing. And it's beautiful. And it's maybe dark at the same time. So in Exodus, what we have here, it's not a new story. The Exodus where we're studying is just part of this larger story that began in Genesis where God made a promise to a guy named Abraham. And when he shows up in the beginning of Exodus, he tells Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, of Jacob. I'm the same God who started this relationship sometime, and I'm going to continue this relationship with you. And in the beginning of Exodus, as Israel is kind of taken out of Egypt, you have this courtship of sorts, this dating time where God sees his bride, the woman that he's been watching for some time, and he says, I'm going to go get her. And I'm going to save her. I'm going to take her out. And he dates her, if you will, by doing all these things and protecting her and kind of wiping out all of her enemies. And then he brings her to the foot of this mountain we're at today called Sinai. And what we see, this amazing picture that's like a wedding where he has found the woman that he wants. She isn't really that special. She's pretty much a whining, complaining, irritating woman. And he says, I'm going to marry you. And he makes a proposal at the foot of this mountain. And it's not a new, brand new relationship. We kind of think like, okay, the Ten Commandments, here they come. But what this is, is just a deepening of the same relationship and taking it, so to speak, to the next level. That's what God said. We're going to the next level, babe. Here we go. And it's a beautiful picture. I think sometimes we look at this and we kind of miss what's happening here. But it's God marrying in many ways. And Moses is kind of the officiant bringing these two people together in holy matrimony. And so we're going to read and see what this looks like and sounds like. And it's pretty Incredible. And Exodus chapter 19 is where we'll be. And we have just left where Moses was learning from his father-in-law Jethro how to kind of organize his leadership. And in verse 1 it says this, And on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. So, it's been three months since they left Egypt. Then God has brought them to this mountain, and they are camping at the same place that God first showed up to Moses in the form of this little burning bush that wasn't really burning, it was on fire, and, Moses, and he told Moses to go get his people. So he comes back to the same place, and it's exactly what he told Moses would happen in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses had said, 
Who am I that you would send me? And God responded saying, I will be with you in verse 12, Exodus 3, and this shall be the sign for you that I'm with you, that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt and you shall serve God on this mountain. In Mount Sinai, for the Jewish people, even today, and for all of Christianity, holds a very special place. And the last 22 chapters of Exodus, from this point through the end of Exodus, all the way through the book of Leviticus, into the first 11 chapters of Numbers, this is where they're at, at this mountain. It's a special, defining place of beginning. And I always... I'm comparing things with my own relationship with my bride or a special relationship you might have where you have that beginning place. That place that you go back to where it all started. And maybe it's the place where you had your first date. Maybe it's the place where you had your first kiss. Maybe it's the place where you proposed or had your wedding. But it's that place where you had that amazing beginning of something where things changed the moment it became a little bit different you you went into this experience whatever it was and you left connected in a new way that was different it's a location that when everything kind of gets chaotic and you lose your bearings and you don't really know what's going on and you feel despairing and dark you go back and maybe it's just this mental place but you go back to that place to say, this is what we're all about. Unless I forget. This is where it all started. And I, I really believe it's, if some of the marriages in our church and elsewhere would think more about the vows that they've taken. And think about that moment they sat there in front of whoever they got married with. And really remembered and meditated on those vows. Things would look different. And they would maybe be reminded of the stuff that they made promises about. But it's that mountain, that place. Where's that mountain? Where do you go? To get kind of back to square one, to the beginning. And so the Lord calls out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. And what happens, God speaks from the mountain. They arrive at this mountain. Moses goes up to this mountain, the mountain they said he would come back to. And in ancient times, when covenants or agreements or promises were made from a king to a ruler, it would always begin very formally, and it would begin by describing what the king or the ruler had done for the people. So that's what he starts doing. He describes what he has done for this bride, this woman, this people that he has brought out of Egypt. And he kind of just surveys their past relationship. And it's not to like convince, it's not like I sat down with with Kalen and said, well, let me tell you all the things I've done for you. Remember all the cards that I did and the flowers and the times I took you out to dinner and the nice things I said to you. It's not like that. But in some ways, he is reviewing their dating experience. And he says, I was like an eagle to you. And in Deuteronomy 32, it goes, Moses uses the same image to describe God as an eagle, which is just amazing if you study an eagle. But what it says in Deuteronomy 32 is this, in verse 10, describing the same situation of him finding this bride and describing himself as an eagle, he says, He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, speaking of Jacob or Israel, 
And he cared for him, and he kept him as the apple of his eye. Yes, that's where that phrase comes from. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them, burying them on its pinions. And sometimes we read that and we go, oh yeah, God's like an eagle. He's very protective and mothering. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's very true. And he's powerful. You know, like, he's awesome, right? He's this eagle. We think this eagle is regal and just amazing, right? But you start reading about eagles, and it's incredible. And you read a verse like in Deuteronomy 32, it says, well, when the eagle stirs up its nest and it's catching its young, you're like, what starts really going on here? Stirring up the nest and catching the young? What are they doing in the air? And it, wait, what? So you start studying what happens to eagles. And eagles are very protective of their young, but they also are training them. They have to train them someday to be eagles. So here's what they do. It's amazing. First of all, they figure out where to lay eggs, and they pick the highest cliff they can find. And the father goes up and starts taking these thorn things, and they start layering a nest. So they go down, fly down to earth, they put some thorns down. Then they go fly down and get some twigs. Then they go and fly down and get some kind of earthy stuff. Then they do it again. They go and get some thorns and some twigs. And eventually they build this nest that was like spikes sticking out. So it like protects. And then it's soft covering. The last thing that they do is the father or the mother will land in the nest itself and pluck its own feathers and lay them down. And then they'll lay the eggs. And so the mother obviously will sit on the eggs and protect the eggs and wait for them to hatch. And eventually they'll hatch and they'll, they'll grow and they'll, you know, they look like those ugly little you know, afterbirth things. But eventually they get feathers and they're kind of cute. And, but then they've got to learn to fly, right? And so what they do is amazing. They're more than protected. Okay, time to grow up. And all this is happening as you parallel how God kind of carries us. Okay? She shoves them out of the nest. She's like, boom. And the little eagle is like, pops right back in. Okay, they kind of flap for a second. They don't really fly. She's like, no, boom, kicks them out again. And they come back, right? Then they'll go through that a couple times. Well, eventually, they kick them out, and Dad starts pulling stuff off the nest, especially the soft stuff. So now you got thorns sticking up. And they kick the thing out again, right? It comes back, and now they're getting all cut up because there's just thorns, and they can't land, and they're getting all bloody and all these things, and maybe they're able to hold on to something. They'll kick them out again. And they'll come back and get cut, and they're like, what are you doing, Dad? You know, Mom, what, what are you what are you kicking me out now? It's painful and you're hurting me. And eventually they kick them out so far that they start falling. And they haven't learned to fly, so they're like flopping down this high cliff, you know, shrieking. And what does Dad do? Dad flies down and catches the little shrieking eaglet on its back and carries it back and the process starts all over again until they learn to fly. And you know what the eaglet's thinking? What the beep are you doing? Okay? You're cutting me, letting me fall, all these things. And as we stand back, we know exactly what the Father's doing. And the, the crazy thing is that's how God has raised Israel here. He gave us bitter water. No water. No food. What are you doing? Kicking them out of the nest the whole time until they grow up. And they've grown up now through pain that they think is just mean. And it's shaped them 
and made them from slaves into soldiers, and now he's taken them from this little girl, if you will, into a bride prepared for a wedding. And it's hard to think that, you know, we always think that God's just this eagle protecting us and loving us and feeding us as he regurgitates on us or whatever, you know, right? But no, he's causing us some pain so that we'll grow up. And sometimes I think we're just so scared to get out of that nest. And so God says, I was his eagle to you. And you were the eaglet. And I've been training you and now you're ready. And then he goes into the proposal in Exodus chapter five, or 19, verse 5. And he says, now, therefore, now that we know this, if you will indeed, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So he goes up, gets the news, cometh back down, and is going to tell them this. And God says something kind of interesting. He says, if you, if you obey my voice. And this if is not to become God's people. They're already, they're already God's people. They were already redeemed by Egypt. They're already, or from Egypt, they're already called God's firstborn. The issue is not status and position in the relationship as much as it is just condition. It says, if you obey what my proposal is here, if you accept it and you obey, you will be blessed, you will be protected, and you'll be loved. And if you don't, while I still be married to you, in some sense, you'll still be my people, our relationship's going to stink. And you're going to suffer. I mean, how many people do you know that, let's be honest, are married and the relationship more looks like two single people. They got a ring on their finger, but there's so much of a lack of joy in their relationship that it doesn't look like they're married at all. And I think you ask them why. Why don't you have this joy in this relationship? I think most of them would probably respond with a litany of things that the other person hasn't done. Let me tell you what my spouse has not done for me or what my spouse did to me. And my guess is none of those people, including myself, would say, well, I haven't fulfilled my vows. That's why it's not blessing. Because I haven't done what I was supposed to do. It's always the other person. And how different is that than our relationship with God, really? We start talking about your marriage to God and you say, why does your relationship with God stink? Well, let me tell you all things God hasn't done. What my spouse has failed to give me or protect me from. He didn't do this or that. And he says, if you obey, though, if you fulfill your vows as I will fulfill mine, he says, you shall be something. You shall be a treasured possession. You shall be a kingdom of priests. You shall be a holy nation. In other words, this one people is chosen not because they're special or deserve it in some way, but because God graciously has proposed to them. I don't believe in the idea of there's only one person I could marry. I think there was a lot of people I could have married and a lot of people my wife could have married. But I chose her and she chose me by nature of her accepting my proposal. 
And yeah, I thought she was special, and she probably thought I was kind of okay back then. All right? But God doesn't pick like the most beautiful princess in the world, although I think I did. He doesn't. Right? He picks them not because they deserve it or they're beautiful. He picks them because He chooses to make them His treasure possession. And it's not a treasure possession just because um, you're going to be treasured now and that's it. They have a role. They have a certain thing they're supposed to accomplish, a certain way to behave. You are going to be a kingdom of priests. You are going to be a holy nation. You are going to look different in this world compared to all others. If you are a Christian, you are supposed to live differently. And it's very similar to how a married person lives differently. Now, if you're not married, this is not, a, you know, to say that you should get married. That's certainly up to God and whether that's in your plans. But the idea of someone who is married acting like they're single is ridiculous. There were certain things I had to stop doing as a single person when I decided to get married and make that commitment. There were new sacrifices that I was going to have to make. Marriage was the first time I think I finally realized I couldn't be selfish anymore. And then when kids came around, it got really intensified. But when you decide to get married and make that commitment, you are going to behave a certain way, which a lot of your single behavior is going to end. And it's no different with God. When you become a Christian, you say, I'm married to you. You are to act differently. And the problem people make is they start making these lists and they become these legalists and they go, this is what... That's obviously wrong. Because if I made a list for my wife, well, here are the things I will do to be a good husband. Versus genuinely having relationship and loving and understanding and seeking and processing how to love every moment, it's different. We are to live a certain way, and there are certain things Christians ought to do, and certain things they ought not to do every moment. And I'm not going to give you a list of what those things are, all to say that we are called to something by nature of being and accepting God's proposal, if you will, and being married to Him. And so, we go into verse 7. It says this, So Moses came called the elders and the people and set before them the proposal, all the words that the Lord had commanded him, and all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. We do. I do. So boldly. I've married just a few couples, and I think the couples I've married have taken their vows pretty seriously. But I've been to hundreds of weddings where the I do comes out so quickly that you think they may not even be thinking about it. I know what the guy's thinking about, right? The girl might be thinking about, I don't know what, but the I do sometimes comes out so quickly, so flippantly, so proudly, so courageously. Little does know that this is the I do of what will be an adulterous wife. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So he goes back up. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. 
And when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on the Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they will come up to the mountain. And so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, and do not go near a woman. So Israel declares, like I said, their commitment to, okay, I do. We will obey everything, which I think they probably intend. I think they they mean it. Oh, we love you, God. We'll do everything you say. We promise. But I'll tell you right now, anyone who's married, they know that marriage is tough. And my guess is that we probably don't revisit our vows very often because they're really hard to keep. We don't meditate on what our actual commitment was. Yeah, we can think about the big things. I want to have an affair, and I will love you, and provide those things. But some of the little things, we certainly fail at. I know that I have failed too many times to know that my I do's that I took didn't just happen naturally. That the behavior of actually living out the vows is very hard. Marriage is not easy. Relationships are not easy And I think that's probably why most people fail it. I'm not talking about divorce. But I think most marriages often fail. Divorced or not. And they live maybe single lives where there isn't really a genuine relationship, but they still got the ring on their finger. That sounds a lot like some of the Christians I know who have been loving God for a long time and they look friggin' miserable. Because it's not easy. A relationship with God is free, but it's not easy because it requires you to stop living for yourself. And that is hard. That's the hardest thing. So God tells Israel, though, in three days since you accepted it, in three days I'm coming. I love that. He's not like the junior high kid that like sends a note and says, will you go steady and give it to Moses and they you know, come back. He's like, I'm coming. I'm going to do it in person. And you're going to see me. The whole groom is... Going to show up in all his glory. Moses is the mediator, if you will, the wedding official, the priest, bringing these two people together. And perhaps this this mirrors the time when Moses was asked to remove his sandals. He says, "Get the bride ready, right? Clean her up." I remember my bride getting ready, and they always have that time, like you know, separate away. Don't look at the bride until it's all ready. And when she shows up, you're just like, whoa, Nellie. You know? Like, dang. I mean, I look at pictures now, I'm like, man, I look grotesque, but you look hot, you know? Because <laughs> that day is like when everyone is, you're, you're at your best. I don't know if I was, but seems like you're at your best. It's beautiful. And so he says, prepare yourself. Go through a three-day washing now, my guess is these aren't, you know, they don't have like KOA campground showers everywhere. These guys probably don't take showers very often, so they say it's, it's quite a job.
to wash your clothes and wash your body. And he says, don't have sex for three days. Moses like, you sure, you sure about that? Stay away from a woman. Stay away from impurity. And some people would read this and say, you know, this is clearly why as we come to God, we need to wear our Sunday best. So I wore my flip-flops today to say that's not the truth. Okay? I don't think that's what this is talking about. That's too simplistic. That's too surface level. I also don't think that it's talking about the idea of like sex being sinful. and well, That's just stupid. Okay? Certainly not that. But without question, it is talking about how, from at least a heart attitude perspective, we approach our God. Something has to happen for Israel here. Whatever it means in terms of why they're cleansing and all this, something has to happen for them to approach God. And it seems like as we approach God, there's, there's two ways that we kind of do this. One is we approach God in such a way we think we can never be clean enough. And we're scrubbing and cleaning everything and so ashamed because we think God sees our dirt. And the crazy thing is, He does. And yet He loves you. That's what the Gospel is about. He still wants you clean. He's not willing to leave you dirty. But He sees the dirt. It's not like you walk up and go, dude, you got something like right there, so, you know, go away. And then the other side, though, is we approach God so casually as if God is our pal. Jesus is our friend. You know, that kind of thing, right? And we have no reverence. We are supposed to approach God with both confidence and reverence. And we seem to lose one or both of those at times. He says in those three days, don't touch the mountain. Don't come near the mountain. You're going to die. I'm not kidding. We have confidence to come before the mountain because Jesus has made us clean. But we have reverence to come to the mountain because God killed him to make it so. That has to be in the forefront of our minds as we approach God and have access to the Holy of Holies in the presence of the Creator, knowing that we should be smited, remembering why do we actually, why are we worthy to come into this presence? And finally, God shows up. The groom enters in verse 15, and it's pretty awesome. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day, don't go near the mountain. So on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. We show that picture of that mountain, it's pretty awesome. And a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And the moments brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. And the Lord came down on the Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. So the groom enters and he looks stinking amazing. He is incredible. He comes with lightning and 
fire. Put that other picture back up. This is a picture, I think, of a real mountain. This is really, who knows exactly what it looked like. It was probably more intense than this. But you have lightning and fire and earthquake and then, I mean, it's not like Czech Maggioni going. It's like some serious trumpet time, right? Going amazing. Everything is like awe. They just sit there blown away by the entrance of this groom. And the last time, if you remember, God showed up in a little burning shrubbery. And it was still amazing, still miraculous, still like something that was, you know, this bush isn't showing up. And he talked probably much softer to Moses and saying, you need to go, I'm going to be with you. But now on the same mountain, he is coming in a whole new way. And he is revealing himself in all his glory. And we sit and we talked about this, I think, before, where there's this thing called awe. Where we sit in awe of God, like we sit in awe sometimes of the of a beautiful sunset. We don't really know how to describe it. We don't go, look at the colors, those are amazing the way they work together. We sit there in awe and go, holy cow! It's beautiful. I can't even put words to it. The birth of a child. Both amazingly disgusting and yet amazing at the same time, right? You're watching it going, how does this happen? You're in awe of it. It's this emotional experience. Partly intellectual and partly a sense of fear and partly a sense of dread, but partly you're just drawn to it. And it kind of understands like you might want to be scared of this thing, but these people still want to get closer to this mountain. You're so impressed by it. I think that's in some ways how maybe a young man or maybe a young woman feel about when they first see their the person they think they want to marry. And they like are just you know, just going crazy. That's way out of my league. I mean God's way out of their league, okay? He's like throwing out of the league, right? Going, oh my goodness, I want to be with that person. Uh, but there's this distance. It's a little scared. And I think that what is amazing to me is what the psalmist says in chapter 8. And this is what I feel like when I think about being in the scene, which is very difficult to imagine. But I feel like these would be my words. So he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at your heavens, the work at your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Who am I that you want to be with me? Can we even fathom the fact that the creator of the universe, which shows up in the most amazing way, wants relationship with you? I'm nothing. I'm sometimes amazed that my bride even married me. Because I'm like, who am I? You're awesome. I'm not. But this is an entirely, infinitely different experience. And no sooner had Moses proceeded a, a little up on the mountain as he's going up into the smoke, and they're like, oh my gosh, he just went up. I mean, whoa. And this is when he was, God's talking to him. He's like, yeah, God, you know, they're going to obey you. He's like, uh-huh, and um, they uh, want to be uh, accepting and obey. It's like, 
oh my gosh, he's like talking to God. And so then he goes up. And he's about halfway up and God says, uh, turn back around. And he says in verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, go down. He already warned them. Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them will perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And the Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us already, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. They ain't coming. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. And so Moses went down to the people and told them, it seemed like God saying, look, I'm serious. I don't think they believe me. I'm going to kill them if they come up. They're going to die if they come to Go back down and tell them, I'm serious. They cannot approach me unless they are clean, and they can't approach me until I say in my way, go tell them again. I already told them, tell them again. I'm not kidding around. And we sit and we see this God and all His holiness and all His power, and we get the same problem that we get in the Garden of Eden, is how are we ever going to be able to approach God? So the last thing, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, which is in the back of the Bible, so to speak, into the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about the same exact scene. And we'll close with this. In verse 18, describing the same scene and how things have changed because of a man who is God, who came to earth and made a way for us to get in that mountain without dying. It says in verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But, in verse 22, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. And at that time His voice shook the earth, but now He has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship 
with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I love you, but if you do not accept Jesus Christ, you are going to die. God will kill you. And that is harsh. But the beauty is that that same God who is a consuming fire is inviting you to accept and be married to Him that He might love you and make you into something beautiful. You must do nothing but admit that you are dirty and broken and in need of someone to love you. And He says, let me. And every Sunday we celebrate the reason why we can go up onto the mountain. It is not because you deserve it. It is not because you are clean. It is not because of any reason other than Jesus died. The bread is a symbolic of Him dying on the cross. His body is broken. His blood is shed so that we can be covered and enter into the presence of God and not be consumed by the fire. And it is a beautiful, beautiful thing because he doesn't say, well, here's your fire insurance. He says, you will be my treasured possession. You will be a kingdom of priests. You will be a holy nation. You will be the eaglet that I take care of. And even though things are a little painful sometimes, I will catch you and I will train you. And it is for your good. That is the one he was inviting you. And I pray that you will accept Because the alternative is to live a single life, figuratively speaking, with a little bit of momentary joy that ends in darkness. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for loving us. I thank You for the groom that You are who promises to love and to protect who pursues us, Lord, when we run away. Who pursues us, Lord, when we deny You, even though we say we accept You. I pray, Father, for those who have accepted Your invitation already will reconsider the vows that they made to You, God. And for those who have made vows to no one, I pray that they will see You as glorious and powerful, and loving, and will embrace You, Father, so they don't have to see You as an all-consuming fire. May You be praised and glorified by all that we sing and give and do, Father, on this earth as Your kingdom of priests. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen.